0: our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub
1: Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor at large at the Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Edward Greenspan, who is the president and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and a former editor in chief of the Globe and Mail and editor at large at Bloomberg Canada. I should say that Ed is one of the most interesting and curious people that I know. I'm not just saying that because he's kind of my boss in my capacity as a fellow at the Public Policy Forum. I'm grateful to speak with him today about a number of topics including a PPF paper that him and I recently co-authored entitled The Urgent Case for a Supply Rebuild, Investing in a New Economic Compact for Canada. Ed, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: Great to be with you, uh, Sean, and thank you for the generous introduction. Of course, being one of the most curious people you know can be taken one of two ways, so I'll be interested (laughs) to see which way you meant it.
1: (laughs) As the former editor of The Globe and Mail, Canada's newspaper of record. You're a card-carrying member of John Ibbotson's, quote, Laurentian elite. Yet, I think that better than most, you've managed to stay connected to real-world questions and their implications for real people in real places. Ed, do you want to talk a bit about what in your background has enabled you to root your policy thinking in the types of people and places that the so-called elite are accused of neglecting?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I kind of think psychologically to start with that I'm I'm a perpetual outsider and uh I'm a perpetual outsider perhaps because I'm from an immigrant family that settled in Montreal. We were Anglo-Montreal Jews that gave us lots of things to be outside about. I was a tiny scrawny kid, I was shy, and so I think I, you know, always been more comfortable as a life observer. And I don't think I belong to the Mount Royal Club or anything uh, of that sort. Of Of course, life has given me an opportunity to have a window on that world. And then I think that was really reinforced in my first job in journalism, where I went to Western Canada. I worked in a a town, Lloydminster, which is on the Saskatchewan-Alberta border. So I got to know both Saskatchewan and Alberta uh, pretty quickly. And it was a town where, you know, people did real things. They they had grain uh, farms or they had uh, cow operations or they, you know, worked in heavy oil fields. And, and you know, I think you see uh, the real Canada on whose uh, shoulders uh, we've all stood, those
1: of us who became Laurentian elites. Let me ask a related question. An issue that's been elevated under your leadership at the PPF, at least relative to popular policy and political discourse, is Atlantic Canada which often can feel a bit distant and neglected for various reasons, including its population and economic size. What caused you to go deep on Atlantic Canada? And what are the rest of us missing in terms of the ambition and energy that you've seen from business leaders, civic leaders, and policymakers in the region?
2: Well, you know, Atlantic Canada has kind of been the forgotten, left out part of Canada for, for a long time. And, and a lot of people in other parts of Canada, wealthier parts of Canada, have seen it as a um, you know, perpetual case of having its hands out and and needing that help. And obviously uh, there's been, you know, some truth to that. I think we've seen an Atlantic Canada over the last five years or so that really wants to make it wants to make it on its own as a, as a lot of people do in the country who fall behind or regions that fall behind and during the pandemic we were watching as population was starting to grow again it was even starting to grow before a lot of people moved home but then a lot of people moved home. I think that remote work has been a boon for Atlantic Canada. I think people can be in a place that they love and and you know they obviously can't extract oil from uh, from Fort McMurray but they can do a lot of things. Uh, from home we're also seeing some tech startups that were really interesting big exit you know one of the biggest deals in Canada in the last couple of years is a high-tech company in Newfoundland called Verifin, which was bought by nasdaq and nobody in the rest of Canada will have ever heard of it every graduate of Memorial University knows it because it's it's a great place to go work and and finally you know in the pandemic I don't know how you felt Sean but I would see my friends in Atlantic Canada, in their Atlantic bubble, getting together while I was isolated at home. And I started thinking, you know, this place is actually, you know, pretty well governed. And then you could notice that they had lower infection rates despite that. Ultimately, they had higher vaccination rates. And I think it's because there's a kind of social cohesion that exists in communities that you know, have kind of grown together and kind of fought the odds for uh, for a long time. And, you know, in this world, I think social cohesion's a um, pet of advantage.
1: I want to take up an, another subject that you've championed in your role as a PPF president and CEO. You've committed the PPF to the energy transition in general, and in particular, the proposition that the goal shouldn't be to, quote, phase out the oil sands, but rather to drive down emissions in Canada's energy mix from conventional oil and gas to renewables. That proposition, while I suspect is intuitive for a lot of our listeners, is not without controversy. There are voices who've come to cast these questions as not merely about lowering emissions, but actually about reengineering our economy. You wanna talk a bit, Ed, about your decision to frame the PPF's work this way and what would you say to its critics?
2: Yeah, so um, thanks for uh, thanks for the perception of goes, uh, that goes into that, and you know from the beginning of you know I came to PPF in part because of energy. I, um, as I mentioned, I started off in a uh, in a heavy oil town in uh, on the Alberta Saskatchewan border. And my last in journalism was at Bloomberg, and one of my responsibilities there was to be global managing editor of the Energy, Environment, and Commodities Group, which was, um, you know, had journalists in twenty two countries covering about fifty countries. And Canada wasn't doing so great on energy policy, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Successive governments. We're not doing well. I was in charge of our Keystone coverage. We couldn't get a pipeline built. We managed to antagonize the pro-pipeline governor of Nebraska. You know, we were kind of inept and, uh, uh, in 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 a bunch of ways, and and it was frustrating to see that. And also, we weren't having a real debate about about the way the world is changing now. I you know think climate change, and I've always thought that climate change is very real and very scary and very damaging. And if you believe that and believe that we need change and you want change, it's actually going to take hold and work and not going to lead to, to a tremendous amount of resistance that so slows it down. So I am not anti-oil, I'm anti-emissions. And if you can get the emissions out of the oil, then that's fine by me. I think you want to do this in a way that is has the least disruption possible economically and socially and not the most disruption. And for some people, they may have an agenda that's disguised, where they really, you know, don't believe in economic growth. They uh, they they don't care about that. They're probably, you know, doing okay themselves, or don't care if if they're doing okay. And they're willing to leave people behind. They think that there'll be a just transition, but you know, just transitions are things that are said by the Laurentian elites that you mentioned earlier, not by the people who have to go through through the transition. So we came up with a a way of looking at this that we called aggressive decarbonization. We have to invest heavily in things like carbon capture. You know, um, we're not pro-oil sands. If the oil sands can't get the emissions out, then then they're not going to survive. Now, there is an irony in Canada that I don't think most people uh, recognize, which is that our oil is high carbon intensity. So we really got to do something about it if we're going to continue to produce it. Our gas is actually low carbon intensity. Lower than most of the world. So our gas is good for not just us, but for the world. It pushes out coal. It pushes out dirtier gas. And as long as gas is around, we should be developing it.
1: Let's stay on the climate file. You talk to a lot of Canadian business leaders about the goal of net zero and the scale of investment needed to net out emissions in the production of energy, in industrial processes, transportation, etc. We have less than 30 years to meet the government's own legislative goal. I guess two questions for you, Ed, our first, how realistic do you think the net zero target is? And second, what technology or idea have you encountered that makes you optimistic about the prospects of actually delivering on the goal?
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm pretty agnostic about, about the goal. I mean, the goal is necessary. So, you know, we've got to figure out a way to do it and we want to figure out a way to do it without shutting down the economy because that will not be politically sellable or economically sensible. So um, I, you know, started thinking in the Energy Future Forum that we have a lot about electricity as well. I have, you know, some knowledge of about gas. I don't think I know as well. And the first thing I saw is, Oh, my, we're going to need a lot more electricity. What are we doing about that? Not only are, you know, uh, are we going to need more supply, but we're stimulating demand. We're stimulating demand by encouraging people to buy electric vehicles, which is a good thing. We're stimulating demand by saying that you know, home heating should move to electrification, industrial production should move towards electrification. So most people seem to think we're going to need somewhere between two and three times the electricity that we have now. And, you know, I stop and think of that. I think, OK, two another or maybe two more Niagara Falls, another, maybe two more James Bay, another, maybe two more, you know, Point Lepros and, and, and New Brunswick, whatever it may be. We need a lot more of it. And it took us 150 plus years to get to what we have now. So we've got to do this by 2035 or by 2050. You know, it's got to be clean by 2035. And it will have to be much more of it. The lowest hanging fruit is to be more efficient, to be smarter in our use of it, to uh, to be so smart. Right now, the electricity system operates. You have to build it so it can be at its peak. So if it's a cold day and you have electric heating, you got to use all the electricity in the system because there's not yet storage in the way there is gas, you know, stores as it goes along. So I, 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 I think that, you know, This is challenging, and I don't think we figured it out. I actually think that Canada's done well over the last couple of years. I think we're in a good position because we have a climate price. That's not the only route to a policy. You can invest very heavily, regulate. You know, there's other ways to go, but we have a mix of policies. We've offered incentives now for carbon capture. That creates a great potential to move uh, move carbon from the atmosphere to uh, caverns underground. I think we're actually doing reasonably well relative to other countries, despite what we might have heard coming to the COP27, which is, you know, Canada's failing. I don't think we're failing like the way that Europe's failed, and failed in many ways because of overreach even before, uh, before the Ukraine war. But oh my God, we got a lot of work to do. And I don't know what technologies are going to make it work. I don't know if small modular reactors, which people describe as being like a nuclear submarine, that actually... You know, work, well, I'm glad we're experimenting with it now. I'm glad that there's an investment. OPG in Ontario is, you know, working with Canada Infrastructure Bank and they, you know, starting a project. And, you know, the province of Saskatchewan is relying very heavily on small modular reactors to work. Hydrogen? Really exciting. I'm kind of, you know, some people like their hydrogen green and don't like it blue, which means that they like hydrogen that comes from electricity, essentially, but they don't like hydrogen that comes from natural gas. Again, I, and I'd say the government of Canada now, I'm neutral about that. The question to me is how much carbon does that hydrogen emit, not how did we get to that point? And so the measure is what's its carbon intensity? And the government of Canada, in the full economic statement, explicitly said that that's its measure now. And then let the technology people, the engineers duke it out to have the best, you know, hydrogen that, that we can. I'm excited about these things. Whether they're going to work by 2050,
1: I don't know. You've been closely following developments in Washington, particularly the poorly named Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, which both involve significant public investments in domestic technological development and adoption, including in a number of areas where Canada has aspirations about being a clean energy leader. Accepting that net zero is not a purely economic goal, which we can rely on markets to do the heavy lifting, it's a political economy goal concerned with non-market considerations like the sustainability of the planet. What, Ed, is the role of public policy? And what adjustments should Ottawa and the provinces be making to their own policies based on what we've seen out of the Biden administration?
2: So the, the Inflation Reduction Act, as you say, I think it was Larry Summers who talked to uh, Joe, Senator Joe Mancini into, hey, this can be an Inflation Reduction Act to get him over, over on side. And maybe it's true because it can put more supply in the economy, which is something perhaps we'll talk about later. But this Inflation Reduction Act is a breathtaking piece of contemporary modern policy. And it's got a lot of money into it, and it speaks, as does the chips act that you talk about the geopolitical tensions and the energy transition pressures, both at the same time. And what it does is it puts something like uh, three hundred and seventy five billion dollars or so in the uh, in the inflation reduction act itself, toward a lot of it toward energy transition and really highly incentivizing hydrogen companies or or carbon capture companies or electric vehicle manufacturers, battery manufacturers to make this transition and make it more quickly by dangling uh, tax credits in front of them. There's no stick, it's all carrot, And therefore, as a lot of companies in Europe, companies in Canada, they're kind of going, you know, I think I might just do that hydrogen project in the United States because it, it's so good. So you have to get competitive with that. And Nothing has shaken Ottawa as much in the last five or six years as, you know, the new energy industry might move south because of this IRA. And so we're going to have to to meet up with that. You know, there's been some victories for Canada in this and there's some threats, I guess. You know, one of the victories was, you may recall that President Biden was saying that they were only going to offer subsidies to electric vehicles that were manufactured in the United States. So that changed in the IRA that a $7,500 subsidy now will go uh, will be available to any um, EV that's manufactured with critical minerals that come from a country with which the United States has a trade agreement. Well, that would be Canada and not China. So we better start developing our critical minerals. But we'll, uh, uh, that's another answer. So that you know brings in a geopolitical aspect. That's a Big, big win to keeping a car industry uh, manufacturing in Canada. At the same time, a lot less publicity, of is a production credit for batteries that are manufactured physically in the United States. So that presents a... And again, you know, I start wondering, well, why is that? Well, I think why it is because the United States, of course, is at heart about the United States. All politics is local and all policy is local. But they don't have much critical mineral capacity, so they need to work with their partners like us on that. they got a lot of production capacity, so when it comes to batteries, they could be protectionist. And uh, and this is a huge, you know, Sean. It opens up a whole other, you know, major strategic issue for Canada as the world's dividing into into camps geopolitically. We're clearly in the American camp geography, destines to us, values put us there, a whole bunch of things put us there. But the Americans are not as generous as they were in the Cold War in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So we're in a camp and we've got to make sure we have things to offer that camp that were relevant to it so we don't get shut out of battery manufacturing as an example.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of the Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program.
1: A a ton of insight there, Ed, and a good segue to our paper, which we released in early November. I should just say what a joy it was to, to work with you on it. And it's been fun to see some of the reaction, good and bad, since its release. Maybe I'll just start by have you talking about the rise in the Anglo-American world. It seems like every day there's new voices and organizations arguing for a new supply-side agenda. It takes on different names, the abundance agenda, supply-side progressivism. We call it the supply rebuild. What's the core insight here?
2: Yeah, well, look, let me say two things first, Sean. One, uh, you know, it was so much fun working with you on this, but, you know, you brought to uh, table the idea, particularly that, that we're talking about a system of thought here. We're not just talking about individual policies. We're talking about how the world thinks about the solutions to the problem and needs to think about them differently in the kind of age we're in with energy transition issues, geopolitical issues, a lot of things. And you kind of connected up, you know, very early in the going from the collapse of, of Lehman Brothers up to the start of the Ukrainian War. How many days was that, Sean? Almost 5,000,
1: 4,910.
2: Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a period of time where we've been waiting for what is the new economic paradigm. So, in the post war years, we had a Keynesian paradigm, which served us well. When it ran out of gas, we had a, uh, a neoliberal Friedmanite type of of, of orientation, which, again, moved away some of the clutter that had built up in the Keynesian model, and then proved to run out of steam itself, I think, you know, with the role that financial deregulation played in the uh, collapse of the economy in 2008, 2009. And since then, we really haven't had an answer. Now we're beginning to see an answer emerge. And, you know, you connected connected those dots quite brilliantly. and And that answer is that we need to move our economic tension more from the demand side to the supply side, which means that you know, when you have a collapse of an economy in 08-09 or again in the pandemic, you prime the pump by putting a lot of money into the system, either through the central bank or through uh or through the government, and you give people purchasing power. You make sure they have purchasing power and the economy goes. And you know, that's a, a very effective and very blunt instrument, ultimately. And its playing defense, it's not playing offense. So what we need to do now is turn our attention to how can we increase supply? You know, and I know both of us have you know talked a lot and been frustrated on some things that we've discovered as we've gone a long way, you know. Uh, we talked a few minutes ago about building electricity. Well, that's a lot of building that has to go on. I don't think either one of us would have known that Canada had such a low quotient of, of ICUs compared to other G seven countries. You know, we need to build skills and 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 skilled labor. We have a low we have low intellectual property in Canada. IP. There's there's all kinds of things that you know have to be built up, both physical and intangible. And, you know, you and Laura Aslan wrote, you know, important papers for the public policy forum about the intangibles economy. And so we got to do a building, you know, we got to get building and we got to get building and all countries have to do this for the energy transition, if nothing else, but we, we have to do it. And it kind of reminded us of the 1950s, I know, you know, where we built a St. Lawrence Seaway. We built a Trans-Canada Highway. We built a Trans-Canada Pipeline. We built campuses. We built suburbs. We built so many things. It's one after another. We opened up our immigration to bring in you know, skilled labor from, uh, from a Europe that was just recovering from the war. And that's the monumental challenge that we have again. And it's challenged relevant issues that people might be thinking about, like inflation. You know, inflation is demand and supply, you know, falling out of whack with each other. So you can do what the Bank of Canada is doing. It only has that blunt instrument to try to, you know, curtail demand a bit so supply can catch up. And you can also invest long term in supply, which is which is a good answer. And I think that's why all countries are moving towards it. And Sean, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you a question, but you know, does it create a bridge politically where one might be able to find a consensus.
1: It's funny, Ed. I was going to ask you precisely this the same question, that one of the exciting things about the supply rebuild, it seems to me, as a framework for thinking about economic policymaking, is it, it involves two parts. There is the active role for governments to catalyze investment in the supply of energy technology, housing, medical, biomedical capacity, etc. But there's also the unblocking role that government has to recognize. You know, that is to say that one of the impediments to the kind of supply that we think we need in our economy is that government policy, often for well-intended reasons, has come to serve as a break on the private sector's ability to produce more supply, housing, of course, being a good example. But let me let me turn that question to, to to you, Ed, because it seems to me the left-wing case or the progressive case for the supply rebuild is reasonably self-evident. We're talking about market shaping rather than merely market-enabling policies. We're talking, as I said, about a more active role for government to catalyze private investment in new technologies. But what about the conservative argument? What parts of the supply rebuild, in your view, may resonate with the Hub's more right-leaning listeners?
2: Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think, um, I don't know the Hub's listenership intimately, but I suspect <laughs> that the Hub's internship wants to build things. And that's what we're talking about. And it's frustrated getting in the way of building things. And, you know, I have um, three kids who are you know outside the house now and would like to have own homes of their own at one point. One of them actually has been able to buy uh, to purchase a condo, and you know housing supply. You know we we got to get over the blockages to supply. That's not the whole question, but it's part of the question which uh, which is underappreciated and underaddressed. And and you know in the energy system, whether you care about the old energy system or the new energy system, or in my case, both, then you gotta build and you gotta invest in both. You gotta attract investment dollars. You gotta attract investment dollars from countries that we're competing with for those dollars. So I do see things that will uh, that will resonate for conservatives as I do see things that will resonate, you know, kind of center left to center right for people for whom outcomes are more important than ideology. There is something, you know, for everyone in this uh in the supply agenda. And there's something generationally important because we're building stuff that our kids will use, the way our parents and our grandparents, you know, built the post-war economy, you know, that uh, that we've, you know, seed magnificently off of. And incomes have been fairly stagnant in this country, or a uh, real income has been stagnant for a lot of years, and we got to break out of that by just not riding the investment that came 20, 30, 40 years ago, but investing in. Real, productive assets.
1: Yeah, well well said. A a criticism of the paper is that it grants too big a role for government in shaping market outcomes through ostensibly some combination of R&D investments, tax preferences, regulatory forbearance, etc. Why don't you take that argument head on? Why do you think that a more active role is needed? And what, if any, steps can we take to avoid the kind of distortions or politicization that is frequently cited as an objection to these ideas?
2: Yeah, I think that, um, I think that the public has an interest that has to be represented at the table now, as they did, let's say, uh, in terms of uh, the pandemic. So if we use that as an example, you know, governments take Operation Warp Speed in the United States as, as an example. So, you know, that that's even a Trumpian thing. There was a role for government there. It's gonna put a lot of money up to incentivize private companies to come up with vaccines much more quickly. And it's gonna reduce regulation while not ignoring safety in, in doing that. Well, that's a pretty good model for, uh, for where we are and the kinds of um, challenges that we have now. You know in the cold war you know i think the government was involved in that military industrial complex that uh, that dwight eisenhower complained about upon upon leaving officer worried about but you know that was because there was a larger public goal which was to make sure you didn't lose the cold war make sure you didn't fall behind the soviet union and i think we have big 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 issues today and i think the people are criticizing the paper are living in a little bit of a a precious space, perhaps, where they're not affected by this. So they've missed that, you know, we have a new Cold War on, and I hope that we can keep that new Cold War, you know, as lukewarm as possible, while not, you know, sacrificing our values, but not, you know, isolating China in the way that the Soviet Union was was isolated. Certainly, uh, a lot of um, my friends in Saskatchewan, where I used to live, you know, will want to continue to sell their potash to uh, to China, and and uh, other people want to sell lumber, et cetera, uh, to China. So I, I I I don't think we want to write them out of the equation. But this is the geostrategic issue, and business is going to need some direction, leadership from government, which will say, look, I think we got to you know work on this, and we're willing to put. Tax incentives here because we've got to protect our supply lines, and you can't move all your labor over to China, and therefore create a situation like we've had politically in the United States and Canada, where angry people left behind rebel against the system, with some cause, with some, you know, with with some reason. The energy transition does the same thing, you know. If you just can't leave this alone to market, but we don't want to return to statism. Because uh, the state moves slowly, governments and markets have different functions, and governments take a longer time to do things because they have a guardian function to do as well. Markets are more efficient, and, you know, government when necessary, if necessary, if not necessary, leave it to the market. But I think we're at a point where, you know, it has to be a partnership. There's a lot of risk involved in change, and, you know, government has to help defray that risk for business.
1: I should just say in parentheses, Ed, I regret that we didn't use Operation Warp Speed in the paper because I, I think it's a, a perfect example of it reflects both the catalytic role that we envision as part of the supply rebuild and the unblocking role. In effect, the the two in, in tandem. You know that may be the subject of an of an op ed or something in the future because I, I I think it's a a really powerful encapsulation of how we've come to conceptualize the role of public policy in this broader framework.
2: That creates learning opportunities for governments and business. And one of the learning opportunities, because approvals did move more quickly, and now we're moving into a period where instead of approvals being sequential, we're going to do this part, and once that's done, we're going to do this, and once that's done, we're going to do this. Now they're rolling where two or three parts are starting to happen at the same time. And the same approvals are occurring, but in a much more efficient manner. And therefore, drugs that can save lives that might take four years, five years to take uh, to market would take you know two years or three years. And, and, and you know, I can't see a downside there.
1: Let me ask a penultimate question about the broader geopolitical backdrop that you've, you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation. It's been characterized as the return of quote, geoeconomics, which basically conveys the growing interconnectedness between economic and geopolitical considerations. Think, for instance, of the weaponization of energy exports by the Russians in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine. Do you want to reflect a bit, Ed, on how the supply rebuild relates to Canada's broader geopolitical interest? Why, in other words, is building and producing more stuff here ultimately in Canada's interest in the world? Well,
2: we don't trust the Russians anymore if we ever should have and we don't trust the chinese any uh, as much as as we used to and i don't you know begrudge the policies of the 1990s or the 2000s or even you know uh into 2010 and and beyond but china today is not the china that we hoped it would be and now it's 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 proven that maybe tomorrow it will be maybe in 10 years 20 years it 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 will be and obviously it it's a very important country but in the meantime we don't want to be subject to, to blackmail from countries on critical aspects of our economy or our lives. So in the supply chain for the new energy systems, far, far too reliant upon China. Critical minerals are processed by and large in China. We need to, you know, security of supply has always been an issue. And countries that forget that, China's never forgotten it. It makes sure it has diversified supplies of things it doesn't know. Europe forgot that when it allowed itself to become dependent for 40% of its its gas on a single uh, supplier, Russia, and a single supplier with geopolitical ambitions and motivations. So, that was just bad policy. Everybody could see that coming. A lot of people have been debating that for ten or fifteen years. Even within Germany, they got lulled into a complacency because the gas was cheaper. It was easy to get. With they wanted to maintain, you know, good relations. So for Canada, we don't want to be as well. We cannot be returned to, you know, uh, a kind of world of autarky where we're going to make everything for ourselves. We got to be in a trading system, but that trading system has to lean more heavily, not exclusively, but lean more heavily towards self sufficiency. Again, in the pandemic, we saw a supply, a supply breakdown in, uh, in places. We've realized, oh my God, we have no vaccine capacity. We're the only G7 country with no manufacturing capacity on vaccines. Well, that's not very healthy, but also we didn't have very much to trade with countries to get the vaccine. So we traded money and. You know, we did a superb job of getting ourselves in position, given how far behind the starting line we had placed ourselves in the previous quarter century. We don't want to be behind that that starting line anymore. So we'll be, you know, where we have advantages, like critical minerals. You know, this is, comes to the core of the supply question that we're talking about, Sean. We have critical minerals. They are in the ground. They're in the ground in remote places. So are we going to take you know, two decades to get them out of the ground and, and make them useful? Because I don't think we have two decades. So how are we going to shorten that to, you know, to a shorter time frame? And, you know, Germany, which needs uh, liquefied natural gas now, has built an a intake facility in six months because they have to. And, you know, you never want to sacrifice safety in doing that, but you do want to sacrifice a lot of redundancy and inefficiency.
1: Let's wrap up with a broader question about ideas. The paper's introduction says that we, you and I, believe that ideas matter. You're someone who worked in journalism for a long time and now runs a think tank. You've basically dedicated your professional life to that proposition. How do you think ideas take shape and gain a hold over policy and politics? What, in other words, Ed, causes an idea to be elevated from, say, a think tank paper to a multi-partisan consensus?
2: Yeah, well, first off, you know, you said earlier about some of the reaction papers have been bad and some of it is good. And I sort of smiled a little to myself because I don't think there is any bad if there's a reaction, you know, because it promotes public debate. It promotes public thinking. It seeps into the consciousness. And I think that's very important. But when I see Important kinds of change, particularly where it comes to ideas permeating across party lines into society, because you can't be, you know, changing your ideas every four years. You know mm-hmm. but that doesn't work. There's, you know, broader national interests at stake, broader public interests at stake. But you know, I, I can recall very much in my in my journalism career in the in 1993, I became the author bureau chief for the Globe and Mail, and we were just entering a period a consensus that you wouldn't have known by watching the 1993 election. But the Liberals and Reform, which had been elected, and the remnants of the Conservative Party, verged on, within two years of that uh, period, they had converged on free trade, which the Liberals had been against. The original authors in Canadian history of free trade policies, but they'd been against the free trade uh, agreement in, uh, in 1988, and we were against the NAFTA, but then they signed the NAFTA. And they, and they came onto to free trade. Deficits, the country, you know, got into a critical period. And there was a strong consensus that built up around that, you know, you cannot run deficits in this manner perpetually at this size and be spending as much of the national income on interest rates as as, as we were doing. And so I think outside circumstances and ideas and people in leadership positions, you know, they come together, and these ideas are 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 the real drivers because they enable people with imagination who find that they're running out of options. They give them you know fresh ways of of looking at the world and acting. and I think that's what you know a good think tank is trying to do, and that's what a good political party is trying to do. You got to be communicating constantly with your supporters to. You know to bring them along and to give some credit to you know Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. You know they did that uh, Liberal Party in their day, but you know it was that or or a real breakdown.
1: I should just say as we wrap up that the story that Ed just outlined about the creation of this multi consensus in the early nineteen nineties is the subject of uh, one of Ed's previous books, along with a co author called Double Vision the inside story of the liberals in power. Ed Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, my friend, boss, and co-author of our recently released paper, The Urgent Case for a Supply Rebuild, Investing in a New Economic Compact for Canada. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues.
2: Uh, thank you for the uh, shining conversation, Sean. It's uh, always great uh, talking to you and you know, together kind of finding some roots uh, to a better future.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman, the Hub's Audio Producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.